0: Good morning, friends. Nice to be here with you. And uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and get it open, or a, a phone, to First Peter. It's a little tongue-in-cheek on the front of the bulletin. We've been in First Peter for quite a while. And just when you thought we were done, Pastor Kyle wrapped it up. <laughs> Along comes a school teacher on summer vacation, <laughs> with nothing better to do than make you review it. And, uh, final test, anyone? You ready? Final? Yeah. Uh, Actually, I'm not, I'm not going to directly review what Pastor Kyle's been talking about for about a year, nine months, something like that, um, but I am going to spend the next two weeks, so hopefully I don't scare you off too badly today, wrapping up this amazing book. I'd like to tie a neat bow on it, maybe even have some of those little curly cues. you know the ones that, I haven't seen them in a long time, you scrape the back of the scissors across and they curl up, oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, Get that picture in your head because what's the whole point of wrapping something up? I know I'm playing with words here a little bit, but the whole point of wrapping something up is so that somebody else will open it and enjoy it and see what's inside. And that's really what I, what I hope to do today. I hope that you this week and moving forward will open up 1 Peter, unwrap it for yourself, see, soak in what God wants to give you from that book when you're home alone this week. Uh, obviously, a sermon on Sunday morning, even nine months' worth of sermons isn't enough. Uh, thank you, Rob, for that introduction. I, I really, uh, I should have known Rob would find a better way to introduce it than me. He, he's right. <laughs> we're going to build this, hopefully, on the foundation of God's Word, but really what we're going to talk about today are some things to live, some practical ways to live out our life, so our life really does do what, what uh, Psalm 19 says. Before we begin, let's pray. Father, thank you for the joy and the privilege of being together with with you, first and foremost, and with each other this morning. Would you, Holy Spirit, speak to each one of our hearts? Would you take my words and turn them into the exact right message that each of us needs to hear? We love you, and we commit our time together this morning to you. Amen. So as I was studying to speak this morning, I ran across the pastor actually uses the book of 1 Peter to disciple or train all of the new believers in his church. He uses it basically as a a teaching manual, and his his rationale was twofold. First, he would teach somebody how to study a specific book of the Bible, sort of the teach somebody how to fish versus give them a fish to eat kind of attitude. And secondly, 1 Peter touches on most of the major themes that a new believer needs to know about how to follow Jesus. It really is a training manual. It speaks about the reality of salvation and faith. What it is, how it works, what joy it brings, how great it is. It speaks about how we're supposed to respond to our salvation. It shows us what comes next. What our Christian life should look like because of our new position in Christ. It shows us how our relationships are impacted. What a Christian is, what a Christian believes, how a Christian is supposed to behave. And finally, First Peter reminds us how the whole story ends. It tells us that Jesus is coming back. And it shows us how that reality should affect everything that we do. First Peter is a great book for new believers. But as I continued to research, I stumbled across a sermon by John, John MacArthur that flipped Peter over, sort of the opposite side of the coin. And, and as great as First Peter is for new believers, John MacArthur made the point that 1 Peter ought to be a book that mature believers revisit, reopen, rip the wrapping paper off of periodically to check themselves and make sure that they're actually on track, to make sure that our thinking, our understanding hasn't drifted, to make sure our actions, the actual proof of what we believe, are still in line with what God tells us. And that's, again, what I'd like to focus on for this week and next week. I'm going to borrow pretty heavily from John MacArthur and and give you eight, maybe nine key ideas from 1 Peter that can help you get on the right track if you're a new believer, that can help you stay on the right track if you've been following Jesus for any length of time, or if you've been drifting to help you get back on the right track. You're, of course, more than welcome to go listen to Pastor John's sermon. He preached it back in 2012 on December 30th. And his sermon was entitled, You Are What You Think. I'm going to take those key ideas and phrase them as a question for you. So the first question today, do you remember who owns you? Who owns you is the question. If you and I were walking down the street and a random stranger came up and said, who owns you? Most of us would be probably taken a little bit aback. Uh, we'd probably say something like, Well, no one. Or if you grew up and didn't grow up, if you lived in California for any length of time like I did, you'd be like, dude, it's a free country. No one owns me. This is America. All right? Something similar to that. But if you have salvation in Jesus, that would be the wrong answer. Somebody does own you. You are actually a slave. Owned by someone other than yourself. I know that sounds strange to us, but we really need to understand and accept the fact that God is our owner. He owns me. So let's go to 1 Peter, first chapter, and we're going to start with verses 18 and 19. 1 Peter chapter 1, 18 and 19. It says this, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The word ransom there can also be translated redeemed or purchased or bought. And that verse spells out by telling us exactly what was used by us. It wasn't silver, it wasn't gold, but what? What was it? Blood. We were bought With the precious, sinless blood of Jesus, we cost God an extreme price, the price of his very own son's blood. So it means we don't own our own lives. It doesn't belong to us. We don't have any rights whatsoever. It's a little hard to swallow, isn't it? If we flip over to the next chapter, chapter 2 of 1 Peter, I want to go to verse 9 in chapter 2. This one starts with, but you are a chosen race. Ooh, that one sounds nice. I like that one a little bit better. God chose us. He says, a royal priesthood. Ooh, that one's even better. We're royalty. A holy nation. I like that one. And then he ends with, a people for his own possession. Or as one translation put it, God's very own possession. Possession. We don't really talk like that very often, do we? We don't go around thinking, let alone telling people that we have an owner. But 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20 says this. Listen as I read. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You caught that bit in the middle, Right? You are not your own. You do not belong to yourself. And we need to constantly remind ourselves of this fact. It means we don't get to be in charge of our own lives. We don't get get to decide where we go and what we do because we belong to God. It means we have to consciously, purposely give up our own desires and wants before we do or say anything We need to stop and say, does it fit in with what we know from God's word? And then ask God, God, is this your will? The great part is that God's way really is better than anything we could do or be on our own. Being a slave of God is better than being the richest, most powerful man or woman on earth. Someone like that who is still a slave, but they're a slave to sin and death. The beautiful part, too, is that God promises to give us everything we need. He does that in 2 Peter. Kyle's going to go there at the end of the summer. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, tells us that when we actually live on the foundation of who owns us, not me, not you, but God, he's going to give us everything we need to do that. Question two. its cl- Tied closely with the first one. Here's the question. Do you remember where your citizenship lies. We know we belong to God, but where's our home? Where do we belong? If you didn't know, I was born in Indonesia, uh, and yet I hold an American passport. When I was young, I fluently spoke a tribal language long before I ever learned to read and write in English, and I spent most of my formative years on the island of Papua with tribal people, uh, and yet now I'm a resident of Whatcom County. Right? That's where I vote now. Uh, I was a white-skinned, super-rich kid, comparatively. Uh, and I wore clothes. <laughs> so I never really fit in with my naked tribal friends. I didn't wear shoes. This is true. <laughs> so if you see me sweating this morning, it's because this is the first pair of socks and shoes I've worn in like two months. <laughs> but I was also a comparatively poor kid, here in America. Right? And I had grown up in the jungle, so I had to learn quickly how to be a chameleon here. But I had so many different ways of thinking and so many different experiences that 99% of people, like, I couldn't relate to them at all. That left me feeling completely lonely, no matter how big the crowd I was in. I've wrestled with the question of where I belong for much of my life. So our next verse in 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 11... It's actually a breath of fresh air to me. Here's what it says. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. It calls us strangers or foreigners, sojourners, exiles, even aliens, depending on your translation. And when I finally came to grips with the fact that my identity, my citizenship, my home, my place of belonging isn't Indonesia, it isn't America, it isn't any other place on this planet, but in heaven, with God and his kingdom, that was a transformational day for me. And if we pause and we're honest enough, you don't have to be a weird missionary kid to struggle with this, right? We all struggle with the feeling of where we belong whether it's the social nightmare of a junior high hallway or my son Ethan going to high school, brand new high school, and joining the football team there. We do it in our workplaces. We do it he- even here at church. We all want to fit in, be ex- accepted, have our place, to enjoy the security of belonging. But Scripture obviously makes it clear that we're not supposed to get lasting comfort from anything on earth. We're citizens of heaven, and that is our true home. I'm going to overgeneralize this morning and say that you fall into one of two groups. Either you're hearing this, and like me, you need to find comfort in the fact that you will always feel out of place, that you will always be at tension because you aren't home. You're not home yet. And you can stop trying to find a place of belonging outside of your relationship with Jesus. Find comfort in that. Or maybe you're doing the opposite and you feel pretty comfortable. Life's pretty good. and Maybe that's because you've wrongly given your allegiance to something else. To a country, to a club, to a group, to your work, maybe even to your family. And you need to realign your allegiance. You need to remember where your true citizenship lies. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 14, verses 26 and 27. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus just skipped right past all the other peripheral things that we give our allegiance to, and he went straight to the things we hold most dear We all have to remember that this entire universe, all that it holds, even our closest relationships, are not where we belong. God is so good and so great that he alone is where all of our allegiance should lie. If you'll reread 1 Peter and dive deeper into that reality, that we're all just sojourners and exiles here on this planet, I hope that you'll see that more clearly. Thank God, though, we do have a home, right? Our ultimate place of residence is with God in heaven. Jesus is very practical about this in Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21, and he says that that we can even send things ahead of us to that home. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, Jesus says, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So that's the question. Where is your heart? Where is your treasure? Who are you giving your allegiance to? Number three. Third question for this morning. Do you remember your commitment to being obedient? Maybe put it this way. Are you willing this morning to renew your commitment to being obedient? John MacArthur went so far in his sermon to call it our oath of obedience. So let's go to the beginning of 1 Peter. Again, I'm going to read the very first two verses in the chapter. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. I'll give you time to flip there. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ... To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Some obvious things pop out in those verses. We know it's Peter writing. We know that he's writing to believers. He calls them the elect exiles, which is back to point two, right? They're exiles. He says, though, that their true home isn't those places that he lists. That's just their current residence. And elect means that they're chosen by God. Then it gets a little bit more interesting in those verses because Peter talks about our salvation. And he refers to the fact that God the Father knew ahead of time about each of them and by inference about each of us. And then he refers to our continuing salvation, our sanctification, the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in us. And lastly, he says what it's all for. Do you see what it's for? Here's what he says, for obedience to Jesus Christ. MacArthur puts it this way, quote, and that's the whole point of your salvation, to bring you into obedience to Christ. This is not a burdensome obedience. This is a joyful obedience because obedience produces what? Blessing. Obedience produces blessing in this life, grace upon grace, and it also produces reward, eternal reward in the life to come unquote. That's what I want you to remember also, and ask yourself today, am I still committed to being obedient? We really ought to be more committed to obedience today than the first day that we accepted Christ's free gift of salvation. But the reality is that we all struggle with spiritual obedience. Like Paul, we do the things we shouldn't do, and we don't do the things we should do. But I'm here to remind you that your struggle with sin will become much easier, and you will have more victory over sin if you regularly remind yourself of the commitment you made at salvation to be obedient to Jesus. I told you earlier that MacArthur called it an oath of obedience. And I'm not going to go into as much detail as he did, but let's go back and read that phrase that comes in 1 Peter chapter 2. It says, for obedience to Jesus Christ. And then it has a following phrase for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. What's that all about, you might ask? Well, I'm going to tell you. You have to go back to Exodus chapter 24, and a guy named Moses has just finished telling all of God's people, the Israelites, all that God has commanded them. And then he writes it down all the laws and commands of God. And when the people hear this, they respond and they say this All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. But it didn't just stop with a verbal commitment to obey all that God had spoken. Moses orchestrates this huge, massive sacrifice, enough for probably at least a million people, probably a lot more. And they kill a bunch of animals, and they take half of the blood from those animals, and they put it on the altar. And the other half, they put it into large bowls. And then Moses reads again, out loud, from the book that he had written everything down in, everything that God had told him. And he gets done, and all the people say again, a second time, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And then in the story, Moses takes the blood from the bowls and he sprinkles it on the people. It actually says he threw it at them or splattered them with it. And the passage concludes with this in verse 8 of Exodus chapter 24. Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. So this was a promise or a covenant between God and his people. And it was sealed. It was made permanent with the sprinkling of blood. And that's exactly what Peter's talking about back here in 1 Peter. When you and I came to Jesus with nothing, Jesus gave us salvation. He promised us that he would bless us. Give us mercy, forgiveness, grace, hope, joy. The list can go on and on. All that is Jesus' part of the promise. And what's our part? To obey him. To live every moment of our lives with Jesus as the Lord of our life. With him as the good shepherd that we follow and obey no matter what. And Peter says that just like the Israelites, we are sprinkled with blood. This time not animals' blood but with the precious, symbolic blood of Jesus who owns us and has given us a new home. Romans 10 makes it pretty clear as well. Verses 9 and 10 says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So the question for you is, is Jesus Lord of your life? If you're saved, if you have salvation, the answer is yes, it is. But now you just need to live up to your side of the agreement. You need to remember to be obedient to everything he says. Jesus makes it even more clear. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Number four. This is our last question for today. Number four. Are you remembering to remain faithful to your biblical convictions? Are you remembering to remain faithful to your biblical convictions? Sounds similar to point three I get, but let me explain it a little bit. If we go back to 1 Peter, we're going to go to a couple verses in chapter one and two. First, verse 13 in chapter one. First Peter chapter one, verse 13. says this, "...therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ." Many of you will remember the King James version that says, gird up the loins of your mind. I actually found a website this week called theartofmanliness.com. And and they have a a step-by-step picture representation of how to gird up your loins. How to take the robe and pull it through and tie it up and get ready for battle is essentially what it's saying. It's saying gather all those loose ends of clothing, tie them up. And Peter's saying that here. He's saying, tie up all the loose ends in your mind and prepare for battle. Again, MacArthur summarizes it this way, quote, tie up all the loose ends of your life, all your loose thinking, make sure your doctrine is firm, your convictions are strong, and be faithful to your biblical convictions. Peter goes on in the first couple of verses of chapter two to tell us the source of those convictions. Where do they come from? Verse 1 in chapter 2, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Malice could easily be translated all evil. Put away all evil. It's not meant to be an exact specific list. And then verse 2, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Peter's being quite profound here if we slow down long enough to think about his analogy. I am obviously not a mother, and I clearly don't remember craving my own mother's milk. And I don't want to tread on the subject of public breastfeeding, but let me just say that there is something amazing about watching a baby long for milk. I grew up in a tribal culture where the ladies only wore grass skirts. That was it. So the reality is, I've seen lots of nursing babies, and I can tell you that they get practically violent in their desire for milk. If you're a mom, you know what I'm talking about. You can also go ask Kyle after the service about pigs and their desire for milk (laughs) and food and how badly they want it. Yes, babies desire it. They're desperate for milk. And in the same way, you and I need to desire God's word. Babies could care less about what their mom is wearing. They don't care what color they're wearing. They don't care how new the car is they're riding in or how much you know about pop culture. All they care about, their first desire, is milk. And it should be the same with us. We should desire the word of God above everything else so that we can grow. If you're struggling to grow, then I want to remind you where it starts. It starts with God's word. I want to pause and get brutally transparent. I'll put it that way. Uh, I shared some of this with my mom and dad yesterday, and it got a little brutal. Because the reality is, uh, I'm going to sound trite for a moment. Forgive me. Hang with me. I'm going to come back around and, and answer the triteness. But I've heard... Read your Bible so many times in my life, I can't even count. I've been guilty of saying it to people too many times. Right? Having a struggle with sin? Go read your Bible. Having a relationship problem? Go read your Bible. Going through something difficult? Well, just go read your Bible. For much of my life, I either didn't read it, or I read it, but it didn't fix any time, anything. Anything. And all those times I heard, go read your Bible, just made me feel more hypocritical and more lost than before. And I don't want to do that to you this morning. I don't want you to walk away feeling discouraged. Or worse, I don't want you to walk away feeling more apathetic about God's word. Instead, I'd like to explain the process a little, in a little bit more detail and encourage you to stand firm. Be strong in the things that you learn from God's word. God really does hate hypocrisy and double-mindedness. So let's see if I can remind you, or maybe for some of you, show you for the first time how this is supposed to work. First, obviously, you have to open the book up and read it. But don't expect it to magically fix your problems or turn you into a super-Christian. This is not Popeye's spinach. Babies remember, go back over and over for milk. And they grow slowly, but they do grow. All right? I think too often we treat God's word like it's a cup of coffee or an energy bar. Right? We want it to quickly solve our issues. I know th- some of you think it's food, but it's not. Right? God cares more, more about our long-term growth and our character. Okay? We gotta read it. And reading is, of course, just the first step. When you read it, you get information. You gain some knowledge. You learn something new, or you hear something old in a new light, but you can't just stop with information. You have to put some work into understanding it. Maybe you go to a mature brother or sister and ask for some help, or you buy a commentary from a trusted source, or you join a Bible study here at church, hint, hint. You read it. You gain some information, you grow in understanding, and you keep doing that long enough that you actually start to believe it. So, for example, the first time I read that I'm supposed to deny myself and take up a cross daily, I didn't really understand what that meant. But I've read it in my life over and over again, and I've studied it over and over until today. Even though I may not do it perfectly, I believe I'm supposed to do it and my belief is turned into conviction, I actively get up every day and choose to surrender my life to Jesus, to give him control, to put to death my own desires, because I have a strong conviction from God's word that that's the only way to truly follow him. So we read it. We gain some information or knowledge. That information becomes understanding. That understanding becomes belief belief that starts to show up in my actions, and that belief becomes conviction. Conviction is still believing it, still doing it, even when it gets hard, even when it's uncomfortable. And we have those convictions, and we hold on to them. We protect them. We let them control our lives, and then ultimately that conviction turns into affection. The problem is most of us want to skip straight to the affection We want to say, oh, I love this so much that it's easy to do it. But we forget that there's a process and that it takes time. And we have to stick with it. But if we do stick with it, we will grow. And we can, we will eventually get to a place in our lives where we can truthfully say, truthfully say with the author of Psalm 119, I find my delight in your commands, commandments, pardon me, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love. I will meditate on your statutes. Oh, how I love your law. I couldn't say that for much of my life, and there are plenty of times still that I struggle with that now. But instead of feeling discouraged and hypocritical and like there's something terribly wrong with me, I go back and I remind myself to stay true to my convictions about God's word. And as I read it, I gain some new knowledge. I do a little work to turn that information into understanding. I grow in my belief, which eventually turns to conviction. And then I enjoy the affection that results. And I can tell you it is sweet to have affection for God and for his word. It can also, I can also tell you that it's miserable when my affections are scattered around to earthly things. I don't know if you noticed up on the stage today, teacher that I am, there's some sticky notes all around the stage. I put those out there to illustrate my affections, my affections that wrongly get pulled away to many earthly things. You fill in the blank with whatever that is for you. All right? But they don't belong out there. Where do they belong? They belong here with the author the being who authored this book. So here's my challenge for you. I don't know where I put them in the right order. Read it. Put your affections where they belong. Gain some knowledge. Turn that knowledge into understanding. That understanding hopefully turns into belief. Hold on to that belief until it becomes what? Conviction. And God, God, in his mercy and grace, he will turn that into affection. Right? Into affection for him, for his word. Turn it into a desire that's stronger than a baby's desire for milk. Right? Let me end with this. We all have the tendency to to want the easy road, and that includes turning our Christian walk into a checklist, all right? I don't want you to do that with what I've shared today. These are important ideas, and I hope you took some notes, but it really isn't about checking off a list of to-dos, all right? It's about a deep, meaningful, joyful relationship with God. Of course, I hope that you'll think about these ideas and practice them, but more importantly... Would you open up God's word for yourself every day this week? Maybe to 1 Peter. Would you grow as you see more clearly who God is and what his plan is for everyone who follows him?